I ask if you would turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And we're looking at verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Would you follow along as I read? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask now that you would bless your word. Or may it be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. May it be a feast for our hungering souls. For this is your word. And through it, you speak. So give us a heart of affection towards your speaking to us. Give us minds that are reverent in our focus and desire to hear and know and learn of your word. And not just this morning, Lord, may may your word be opened and may you be speaking to us throughout the week. Individually, we are people who come to your word to know you, to embrace who you are and what you do and what you then call us to do as your people. And that individually we understand that we have this this great blessing and privilege and responsibility to follow after you passionately. But that, 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 that individual responsibility then overflows into this corporate opportunity to come together as your people and to declare not only our connection to one another, but our connection to you and our allegiance to you and to your word. As we open it, this is not the only time we eat of your truth, but it is the time when we proclaim together that we are your family, your people, your body. And our desire is to hear from you. Our desire is to be led by you. So Lord, I I pray, use me as your instrument. Let me be nothing more, for that's all that I am. And may your word be clear. May I convey it faithfully honestly and as it has affected my own heart may it also 
affect the heart of each of your people. We pray this not of ourselves as a church and not of myself as the preacher this morning. We pray this of all your people across the globe. May your preachers stand in their pulpits before their congregation and preach your word faithfully and be nothing more than instruments in your hands to convey your glory and your good and your truth to your people. And in turn, may your people embrace you and your truth. And may they seek to then live it in each community that they are in. May may the gospel community of the church permeate every other community so that your name might sound, your glory might be known in every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation on this earth. Lord, we pray this in your Son, Jesus' great and glorious name. Amen. Today we are beginning a new series here in Philippians, and it is where we get our theme for this year. And so our desire is to be living as members of gospel community, living as members of gospel community, and just as that's the theme of this whole study in Philippians, it's Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, and that is what we're going to see is his desire, his driving desire for that church, and then in turn, as, as God in his providence has caused Paul to write Philippians not just to be a letter to the church at Philippi, but to all of God's people. It is a driving desire, not just of Paul's for Philippi, but of God's for his church. And this morning, the title of this sermon actually is exactly the same as the title of the series, which is Living as Members of Gospel Community. And we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, as we have read. Now, just as an introduction, Paul, along with Silas, planted the church here in Philippi. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 16. And uh, most of us are probably familiar with Paul and Silas having been thrown in prison in Philippi. And there they're in chains, in the stocks, and they sing God's praises while they're there in prison. And God causes an earthquake to occur. And so that all the chains of all the prisoners fall off. And yet... None of them run away. This is the glory of God. And so the jailer is about to take his own life because he knows that's what's going to happen if he loses the prisoners, that Rome is going to have him executed. And yet Paul says, wait, 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 don't do it. We're all here. Even though the chains are off, even though the walls have fallen down, all of the prisoners are here. And the jailer is just dumbfounded and wants to know more about this God that Paul and Silas are singing about and praising and now have caused all the prisoners to stay. And so Paul and Silas go to his home. He's converted, and his household is converted. And that's part of the beginning of the church. Less known is uh, the church is actually started by a very faithful Jewish woman named Lydia. 
And as Paul goes and Silas goes to Philippi, they end up coming in contact with Lydia. She is converted and saved to Jesus being the Messiah and puts her faith in him and then says, you guys have to come and stay with me. And she's a very wealthy woman. And so she has Paul and Silas come and live in her home with her. And the church starts there with her and with this Roman jailer. And here's this beginning of the church. And then what we find is that they were only able to stay there for just a few days, really. I mean, this church starts in just a few days. They're hanging out there before the Sabbath. They they go to the synagogue. They preach the gospel. Lydia's saved. The, then they go out and are preaching kind of open-air ministry, preaching the gospel. And there's this girl that's possessed by a demon. They cast out the demon. That's why they get thrown into prison. And then the whole you know earthquake thing happens. Jailer's saved. The jailer comes back and says, hey, the magistrates said you can leave. And Paul's like, no, we're not just going to leave. They publicly put us in prison. They can publicly come and take us out. And so the magistrates come and apologize profusely because they found out the Roman citizens, and they're like, oh, no, we could get in big trouble. And so they apologize profusely. They take them out of prison, and they ask them to leave the city. And that's what they do. And they leave. And yet, what do we find? We find that, that that little spark of the gospel creates this community that now Paul writes to years later. In fact, I mean, we could go further back in the discussion and find that Paul was actually not going to go to Philippi. He is planning to go in a different direction. And God sends this man in a dream from Macedonia and says, come here and share the gospel. And that's why they go the direction they go, that God directs them start this church and ultimately to see it flourish. Paul likely visited the church later on. We read about Acts 20. He goes back to to Macedonia and specifically we see he set sail from Philippi to head down to Jerusalem, ultimately to his imprisonment in Rome. And just like with other letters we've looked at, other even prison letters like Uh, As we preached through Colossians last year, Paul has a burden for the church as a whole. As we see, there's many letters to the various church, and then he has a desire specifically for the church of Philippi, and it's stated here in verse uh, 27 here of this chapter as a succinct summary of the point of his letter. And so our main point is coming from this. It's the main point of, I believe, the whole letter. It's the main point of our theme for this year. We are called to live as members of gospel community by standing and serving together for the gospel. We are called to live as members of gospel community by standing together and serving together for the gospel. Which leads me to a a separate part of the introduction. Why preach through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi in 2021? Why this theme? I think in part because 2020 has wreaked havoc on community in many ways. Between COVID, between our political and social divisions that we see in our country, it is important for Christians to be reminded what unites us. And what unites us is greater than what might potentially divide us. But also as we consider this, that our unifying Christ and our unifying gospel, as we're going to see here in verse 27, 
is meant to have an effect on our everyday lives. It's meant for us to live a certain way because it exists, because we are a part of it. That which unites us is greater than what divides us, but that which unites us actually empowers us and infuels us to live certain ways. Rather than being stagnant amidst the swirling divisions that exist in our world today, our unity around Christ empowers us to stand together and serve together in the very midst of this kind of chaos. In fact, it is only when we truly admit that apart from Christ, all of life is actually chaos. You know, what some of the so there's lots of detriments that we could talk about in regards to COVID and regards to the political and social divisions that exist. They're not good things. But yet, God has a way of using things that even that seem to be the most wicked and awful and evil to display his glory. And sometimes, sometimes this chaos that we exist in can shake us out of, out of this dream world that we've created, that we think that if everything's just going smoothly and everything's just going okay, as Christians, we're all good. The fact is, apart from Christ, all of our life is chaos. And to give yourself over to something other than Christ as your leader, as your authority, as the focus of your life, is to go the opposite direction of the gospel and of God's truth. We need to be reminded of that. Only only when we are reminded that all of life is chaos apart from Christ, and that in Him we can genuinely live out our unity. Only when we're reminded of that do we then abandon all hope in the false gospels, in our false savers that our sinful nature presents to us, that our world around us presents to us, that the devil attempts to ensnare us with. The false alliances and false allegiances that cannot ultimately unite God's people to stand together and serve together for the faith of the gospel. And so if we are to live for Christ, then we must live for Christ alone. And if death is to be gain, like Paul writes here in Philippians, if it's to be gain for us, then it must be because to live is to live for Christ alone. Christ is what unites us. Christ is what gives us purpose in this life. So my desire is to kind of unpack these truths here out of verse 27. And so two statements, what you choose to live for matters and how you choose to live matters. And we want to see how that is worked out here in our text. So first of all, what you choose to live for matters. What you choose to live for matters. And as Paul writes here, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here he describes what we're meant to live for. And he's not doing it in some like vacuum, in some void. Realize this is Paul's very means of life as well. Look back 
just a few verses before. As he writes at the end of verse 18, Yes, I will rejoice, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What is fueling Paul? What is driving Paul? How has he chosen to live his life? In everything, as always, Christ would be honored in my body. He's saying, I live for him. I mean, he goes on to say, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why? For my, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Why? Because Christ is his life. Christ is his everything. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. This fruitful labor, but this fruitful labor is for who? Not ultimately for Paul, that's the benefit of the church, but ultimately it's to honor Christ with his body, to honor Christ in the flesh, to honor Christ with all that he does, which in turn overflows in this only let your manner of life be worthy, what? Of the gospel of Christ. So we are to live for the gospel of Christ. what we're to live for, which is the next point on the slide there. Live for the gospel of Christ. Now, as we look at that phrase, there's two options we have to help us to understand what he means by this, the gospel of Christ. It could be that the gospel is owned by Christ. It is the gospel of Christ. Christ owns it. Or it could be Christ as the object of the gospel, this gospel whose object is Christ. And I think the second one is the right way for us to understand it. We're to live for the gospel whose object, whose central figure, the point of the gospel is Jesus Christ. And why do we say that? Well, because he uses a second phrase towards the end of the verse as our purpose as well. Notice he goes on to say, whether I'm there, whether I'm not, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to live for the faith of the gospel. And that's the second point here. What you choose to live for matter, and that, that really has one option, that the gospel is the object of our faith. Faith is not owned by the gospel, but rather the gospel is the object of our faith. So our faith, we're meant to live for our faith whose object is the gospel. We're not trusting in our ability to trust. We're not trusting in our faith and how much faith we have. What are we trusting in? The object of our faith is the gospel. The truth that we are sinners who have rebelled against God, yet God in his love has sent us Jesus Christ, his son, to be our propitiation, to be the substitute, to absorb the wrath of God, to take the punishment of our sins upon himself. This is the, this is the object of our faith as we're trusting in him to do the work we could not do. 
And that in turn, Jesus Christ gives us his righteousness to all who put their faith and trust in him, to all who turn from their sins and give themselves to Jesus Christ. He takes our punishment, gives us his righteousness. This is the object of our faith. This is what we're trusting in. Not any works of our own, but the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the central figure of the gospel. He's the object of the gospel. And therefore, if we are going to put our faith in the true biblical gospel, our faith is in Christ alone. Our hope is in Christ alone. Our life is therefore lived for Christ alone. And apart from him, we have no hope. If anything else is the object of the gospel that you believe in, other than Christ, if he even shares it with anything else, then it is not the biblical gospel. It is not the truth from God's word. It is a different gospel. And as Paul writes, those a different gospel. Anyone who preaches a different gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven, should be anathema, should be cursed. Because the object of faith is the true gospel, and the object of the true gospel is Christ, and Christ is the object of all that we live for. For me to live is Christ. And therefore, if Christ is my life, and death means to be with him forever, to die is gain. To die is gaining the true life that we all anticipate. So what you choose to live for matters. It matters. Which means there are other options, right? There are other things to live for. Which brings us to the question, what do we live for? You look over the last year, 2020, what did you live for? Now, I'm not saying that you can't have certain desires. You know, I prayed and had a desire that COVID would be done. But was all my hope resting in that? Was all my fears about whether or not I got COVID or whether or not someone I knew and loved got COVID? No, I mean, those fears existed, but they weren't ruling over me. They weren't what I lived for. Financial security. Some people, again, with a lot of the restrictions and everything, they struggled with their finances. That could dominate your life. That could dominate your vision. Are we going to be able to make it? Are we going to be financially secure? Begin to live for that and not for... Christ. There are many other options, even things that are good. Our family, which is good, and we should love them, and we should care for them, and support them, and encourage them. There's all sorts of commands in Scripture. And broadly, as we think of church family even, we're meant to care and love and support and encourage and all these things. But when Christ describes those who follow after him, he says, if they, if they take the place of me, or if they're even on par with me, 
you cannot be my disciple. Christ holds a place that no one else and nothing else can hold. We are to live for Christ in a way that we do not live for anything else. In such a way, and again, this is how Christ presents it. If you do not hate your father, mother, sister, brother, if you do not hate all this world's possessions or whatever, in such a way, we are meant to put Christ in a place in such a way that we're willing to sacrifice everything else for Him. He has such a dominance. And this is what it means for me to live is Christ. To live in a, word, in a way worthy of the gospel of Christ. Which brings us to the second point. How you choose to live matters. How you choose to live matters. Because we can affirm the truth. Christ is our life. Christ is the object of our gospel and the faith that we believe in. And He's the central figure. And we can affirm all those truths. But then how you choose to live matters. And Paul first writes here, we are to live only. He says here. Only. This is compared to Paul's one thing, that Christ would be honored in His body. That He would be His life. And now, as Paul says, I am choosing to live this way, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. In comparison to Paul's choice to live and die for Christ, each member of the church in Philippi must make their choice too. Only now you make your choice on how you're going to live. What does this mean? This only means that there's no way any of us can rest on anyone else's choice. The church of Philippi couldn't rest on the fact, well, Paul is choosing to live for Christ, so, you know, we're good. We'll just, we'll just champion Paul. Paul, go for it. Or it's like, our church is living for Christ. I don't have to personally, but our church is doing it. So that, I'm good then. No, when Paul says here, only let your manner of life, he's saying, now you have to make a choice. Here's my life. Where's yours? What's your choice? And our church lives for Christ only as much as each of its individuals live for Christ that make up it. Paul cannot live it out for anyone but himself, and neither can your church live it out for you. You must live for Christ. That significance of that one word, only. Help us understand this comparison between how Paul is choosing to live and now how we are meant to live. And the choice that we have. He goes on to write, let your manner of life. So we are to live a manner of life. It's our next point here. We are to live a manner of life. And this phrase, it's really one word that is translated in this phrase, is meant to convey this conduct of oneself with a proper reference to one's obligations in relationship to one, to one another as a part of a community. It's hard to get that from the English. Let your manner of life, let your life display this obligation of relationship that you have with this community. What community? The gospel community. Because it's a manner of life worthy of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a membership within a gospel community that the church at Philippi has that Paul is 
calling them to, beckoning them to live in a way that fits with the membership you have in God's church. Which means that Paul is indicating here that there is a way members are meant to live and therefore there are also ways in which members are not meant to live. There are ways that convey that they are part of the gospel community and then there are ways that will then display that they're not. At least not consistent with what they claim to be. Our manner of life is meant to be consistent with the relationship we have with Christ. And in that relationship, the relationship that he has brought us into in his body. In turn, he goes on, the third point here, we are to live worthy. Live like a true member of the gospel community. Live in a way that truly conveys its reality. And this worthy here is this in the sense of living up to it, not living to earn it, because we are never worthy of our new life in Christ. In that sense, we cannot ever earn it, but we can live up to it. We can live like people saved by the gospel, changed by the gospel. It often shows when we struggle most in life. And when we struggle sometimes. And when we find life somewhat bearable. And even when life is easy. And when life is a complete joy. And we can't imagine living any other life. In every opportunity we are given a chance to live up to what we are in Christ. In our greatest struggles and in the most minute of struggles. In our greatest joys and the most mundane, bearable days. Yeah, I got through it. It was good. You know, I don't have anything to complain about. We have an opportunity to display who we are in Christ, to show that we are new creation in Christ Jesus. And if we're called to live worthy, then what? We can also live unworthy. And what does this declare to us? That the gospel is meant to work beyond our conversion. It's meant to affect us long after. And it is meant to affect everything. Every area of our life, every moment of our life. Is meant to display the gospel community that we're in, the members that we're a part of the body of Christ. We're seeking to live worthy of that gospel calling, displaying who we are. Do we deserve that? No. But we have the opportunity. We've been given the privilege. It's like, you know, part of the reason I think why the Bible describes us as being brought into God's family, being his children. Now we get to live worthy of our father. What does that mean? We're not doing it to earn his favor. He's already granted us his favor. And what are we doing? We're trying to just live like his kids, right? Hey, that's not what the Heller kid does, you know? Right? 
I mean, I don't know if you ever use that on your kids, but I use it on mine. You know, that's not how we act, you know. And they're like, well, I saw you act that way. I know. I need to repent. I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's not how we're supposed to act. Right. Right. It, because we're trying to what? Live worthy of who we are in the family. And love the family. We care for the family. We give for the family. And turn, what's that calling here? Again, not earning. We don't deserve it. But it's calling us to live worthy of what we've been given. Which leads us to the next one. We're to live whether I come or am absent, he says. What does he mean by that? Our, our choice to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is not dependent on anyone else. We can sometimes think, well, you know, if somebody just had helped me along or if somebody just held me accountable or whatever, but what does Paul say? Paul says, this is the expectation of the gospel life, of the gospel calling that you've been brought into, empowered by Christ, so that whether I'm there or whether I'm not there, this is your calling. This is what you meant to live to. And I have no doubt Paul would have been really helpful, right? Don't you think if Paul were around, if Paul came in today and was here and we could talk to him and everything, he'd be really encouraging to you, maybe convicting, challenging. He would help your walk in Christ, right? But what is Paul saying? Paul's saying you have Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. And while other people are beneficial, ultimately you have what you need. You're not dependent on anyone else. In, in that, again, we affirm this fact that each one of us must individually choose to live the life that God has called us to live. Individually, we must choose to live it. Yet, what does he go on to do? He goes on to say we are to live, the next point, in one spirit with one mind, side by side. And the fact that we individually choose is not meant to make us individualistic. You see, we, 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 we want to like gravitate towards our American individualism, you know, we're our own people. We don't need anybody else. Um, but then when we fail, we want to blame it on someone else. Like, we gravitate to the wrong sides of individualism and community. It's what we naturally do. That's what our sinful heart does. And what does the Bible call us to? It calls us to the fact that we have to individually make a choice to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We each do. We cannot throw ourselves on Paul or our church or anyone else to make those choices for us. We have to make those choices. But then in turn, what does the Bible say? As you individually are making a choice, you are making that choice as a part of a community. That is, is there to help you. Is there to encourage you. And you in turn are there to help it and encourage it and all those who are in it. We are meant to do this in one spirit, with one mind, side by side. So we need to put the, put the responsibilities in the right place. And that's why in my prayer, I'm like, I hope this is not the only time that you open your Bible. Because individually, you have a responsibility to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ, to know Him better. But at the same time, you have the privilege to come together with His people, to look into God's Word and proclaim that He is your greatest allegiance. And you submit along with all of us to him. Just to the last point under this, we are to live standing firm and striving. 
This is where we get the standing together and serving together. Standing together comes from the idea of standing firm. Serving together comes from the idea of striving alongside one another. Serving, giving of ourselves. And this is going to be unpacked throughout the rest of the letter. As we go into chapter 2, we see how we're meant to serve. Reminded of the mind of Christ that is in us. The Christ who humbled himself and gave of himself for us. In turn, we are meant to give of ourselves to one another. We have that same mind. And in turn, he, he, he presents to us the great example of Timothy and Epaphroditus to help us to understand what that, what that service can look like to give out the faith of the gospel, to encourage one another, strengthen one another, to share it with those who are unbelieving, to, to continue to build God's church by seeing people say, by giving out the faith of the gospel, and that comes through us serving, giving of ourselves. And then in turn in chapters 3 and 4, we see this idea of standing firm for the faith of the gospel, that there are false teachers that come in. And there are times even when we ourselves begin to combat with one another, and we're meant to stand firm on what? The faith of the gospel. We're not meant to be distracted by the minor things that might divide us, but rather be pulled back to that which is which we affirm together and defend together, the faith of the gospel. So this is number three, connecting to everyday life. First question, what are you living for? What are you living for? Your health, your financial freedom, America, the weekend, your hobby, entertainment, the next game, your family, your job, your mental health, better life now? What is it you're living for? Paul is calling us to live for Christ alone. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Second, how are you choosing to live? This is a call of examination. How are you choosing to live? Christ will not be fooled by our lip service. He will not accept it. I mean, honestly, who, who really appreciates that? None of us do, ultimately. And so it's a call to examine. How are we choosing to live then? If, if we truly embrace this idea that we are to live for Christ alone, then it needs to be overflowing into our everyday life. To say yes to one thing is to say no to a thousand other things. And is Christ the yes or the no in your life? Does Christ dominate the decisions you make over and above all other things? Or is he relegated to the side like so many others so that you can truly pursue what is passionate for you? Are you benching Christ for your agenda? The call is examination. The call is to look at how you choose to live. I cannot do that for you. And by all appearances, we may look like we are living for Christ, but you know each moment. You know each thought. You may say, 
What am I to do? Trust not in your own way of thinking. It leads to destruction. Trust in Christ. It's easy for us to naturally fall back on our natural tendencies. But unfortunately, our natural tendencies are sinful. Draw us away from Christ. That's why we aren't meant to trust in ourselves. That's why we're told our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. We're meant to hear Christ, trust in what he says, and then follow after him. As we sang, as we see in Scripture, follow after him constantly, this refrain. We're meant to be following after him. We're sheep. We're sheep that are not meant to find the directions. You know, we're not meant to pull out our GPS and go, I can figure this out. We're meant to follow the shepherd. That's who we're meant to follow. How are you choosing to live? And then these last two questions, as we start this year, I just challenge you to think through them. What is one way you can stand together in 2021? Ask God to help you see and act accordingly to this. As we're going to be looking at these two ideas, the second one is what is one way you can serve together in 2021? Do you consider what God is calling you to? Begin praying now. Begin asking God to to show you ways that you can stand and affirm the gospel together. Uh, In the world in which we live in, we, we need Christians to stand together and defend the gospel and defend God's truth. In turn, to serve together as well. The world needs to see a people who are unwilling to be divided by lesser things because of our union with Christ and Christ alone. And the world needs to see that kind of community. And then in turn, as they see it, as the gospel is shared with them, as they're invited to partake in it and truly know the salvation that comes from Christ alone, the acceptance and the unity that comes from his body, what more attractive to a world that is tearing itself apart with division than to see that people who, by all appearances, natural appearances, could definitely be divided are united by Christ. This is to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give grace to us this year. As we look through this letter that Paul wrote, ultimately that you give us as a gift to your church, that we would seek to live out our calling as members of the gospel community. And that that's not just members of Gospel Life Church. That is members of the church universal. Members of your body, your family. Go beyond these doors. And the call to stand together and serve together as we unpack this letter and as we see the call to serve and to stand, Lord, may we embrace them. May we seek to, uh, may we see, may we seek to apply them to the, the, the everyday aspects of our life. And in turn, as we do, may we see this intense growth in our spirituality as Christ is in the forefront of our vision, as our exaltation of Him is our goal, as as, as our living then is, is toward that end. May we see the blessings and benefits 
in even the most mundane parts of our lives. And in turn, you receive all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.